right, if you have your Bibles, why don't we go to Matthew chapter 28, and as we announced this evening, we want to begin a, a sort of a series on the person and the work of, of the Holy Spirit, and I would encourage you, as kind of these Bible studies will sort of have a little different format than what we typically do as we're journeying verse by verse uh, through the Word as we do on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. We'll be sort of in a little more of a a topical, obvious type format where we'll move around a little bit and we'll be giving you uh, cross-references and multiple scriptures. And again, don't don't panic if you don't get everything down. We record the messages. That's the the benefit of, of doing that and uh, but I would encourage you, if you, you're a, a note taker uh, or whether you're not a note taker, these would probably be good studies to do that type of thing, to have a, a paper handy and, and a, a pen or a pencil available to be able to just jot down some of these things because we won't be able to, to reference and read every scripture and so forth. But just want to give to you as adequate as possible of an understanding and some of the scriptural reinforcements of the things that the Word of God uh, teaches in regards to uh, the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because these are are vital things. And, you know, if we had questions uh, about uh, marriage, uh, we would probably, if we want the most accurate answers and understanding of those things, uh, tell someone, look, the place you ought to go is the Bible. Uh, That's the place where you're going to get the most accurate answers. Or if we had questions about uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Look, you, sh- you should read the Bible. Don't just listen to what other people say or even what their experiences are, their opinions are. You should go to the Bible. See what the revelation of the Bible says about those things. And yet, interestingly enough, it seems that many a times, uh, even among the circles of Christianity, people don't retain that same perspective towards the Holy Spirit. It seems in relation to the person and work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he operates, a lot of times what people do is they look to the experiences of other people and they want to, hey, well, what was your experience? Or or they look within maybe some uh, sort of the, the dynamics or learned behavior in a certain type church that uh, maybe they grew up in or they've been exposed to. And quite honestly, let's, let's just be very realistic. I mean, we have everything from the extremes of uh, kind of hyper-Pentecostalism where we see, certainly I appreciate a tremendous openness and a sensitivity to the ministry of the Spirit, but also within that, unfortunately, Many times we see things taken, I believe, to uh, an unbiblical extreme, and there is sometimes an overemphasis on experience to where experience is upheld as kind of maybe the most important thing uh, rather than sometimes uh, truth and so forth. And and we have some things that happen among uh, those circles, like I said, that, that I don't see in Scripture that I think get a little bit out of balance. And then you can go all the way to the other spectrum of Christianity, and you have people uh, who uh, want to be so doctrinally right, they're dead right, in the sense that they want to diminish uh, everything in relation to the Holy Spirit, and they're almost, and I think it's almost a reactionary response sometimes, they're almost afraid of the Holy Spirit, and anything that speaks or would seem to give indication of the Spirit of God's work or ministry or the gifts of the Spirit, uh, they're complete cessationists, those things are not for now, we need to stay away from that stuff, that's the kookaboos among the church, you know, we, we don't 
want to do that. And just uh, there's no way I'm going to, you're not going to have me swinging from chandeliers or, you know, for all on them rolling around on the, and, and they have almost this opposite response. And again, and I appreciate the adherence there in some areas to the word of God, but also there, I think there becomes an unbalanced extreme of just diminishing the, the validity of what the scripture teaches of the importance of the person and the ministry and the gifts and the work of God's Spirit that is among uh, the body of Christ the way it should be in a healthy way. So I say that up front to say this. If we want a accurate understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't you agree the best place to look would be in the revelation of Scripture? Not in what we see among the experiences of other people, or not to ask other people, or not to look to experiences, but to to honestly, without preconceived ideas, and that's the trouble, because sometimes then we come with preconceived ideas because of maybe our experiences or what we've seen that might have made us uncomfortable, or maybe we sometimes even, I think certain things become just learned behaviors. Hey, that was what I was raised in and what I experienced, so I just embrace that would you agree i think the smartest and most wise thing that we can do especially if we claim to be bible believing christians is say what does the word of god say what does the word of god say about the person and ministry of the holy spirit what do the scriptures reveal about him in relation to who he is and what his ministries are and how he operates and functions in our lives and that's what we really want to do and i encourage you just with an open heart to journey with me as we look into what the scripture has to say and let that be our foundation, uh, not the other things many times that we contend to lean on. And as we go through this, uh, again, we'll look at multiple different things. You know, my heart intention tonight is to look, as we said, with sort of the title of the deity and the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other sessions, we'll talk about things like the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, what is his ministry in the life of the believer? We'll talk about the work of the Holy Spirit among the church. We'll talk about the work of the Holy Spirit among the world. What is his ministry and function on the world? We'll talk about the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit. The, you know, We'll look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and some of these other things. But tonight, again, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. It'd be good if I joined you there, wouldn't it? That would help probably. Uh, Matthew 28, we want to talk about the deity and the person of the Holy Spirit in this session together with you tonight. So Matthew 28, of course, this is a very familiar passage. You have here what we often call the Great Commission, where Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He's risen again. He's about to ascend back up into heaven from whence he came to be there, seated at the right hand of the Father, where he remains until he returns back uh, to the earth once again in a second coming. But before he leaves here, Jesus with the disciples, there it tells us in verse 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus spoke to them, giving them this commission, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, here Jesus is commissioning the disciples whom he has spent three and a half years with in ministry. And what you basically have here is the first group of Christians 
the first group of believers who Jesus calls to go forth and to reproduce themselves, to go out into the world, he ultimately says, among all nations, and basically to seek by the Spirit of God's help and Jesus' assistance, because he says, I will be with you always. My authority is with you. I'm alive. I'm at the right hand of the Father. I will be working together with you. Mark tells us in his gospel that they went forth preaching the gospel, Mark 16, preaching the gospel everywhere. And it says, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs. And I like that. Jesus tells them to go out. Their job is to go preach. And Jesus says, you go preach and I will put my power together with your preaching. And it says, they went and preached the Lord working with them in their ministry. So they're going out now to reproduce themselves. And Jesus tells them here in Matthew 28 clearly what manner in which they are to make disciples or followers of Jesus. Look with me there in verse 19. He says, make disciples, notice, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the manner in which they were to make disciples was consistent with, with their God. And their God, Jesus indicates clearly, is a blessed trinity. He says, make disciples in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, one of the essential doctrines of our Christian faith, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity, you can study your Bible, you'll find it never is used in the Scripture. You do not ever find the word Trinity in the Word of God. In fact, the word Trinity comes from a Latin word, Trinitas, which basically just indicates the number three, or a triad, or if it's a true word. If not, I make up words all the time, don't worry. It, it basically means threeness. That's, that word Trinitas, that Latin word, is a word that we've produced into an English word, Trinity, which we use to describe our belief from the scriptures teaching, our belief that we have one true God, nevertheless, who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is a reference to what we believe that there is one God, yet that one God is composed of three separate persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And though the word Trinity never appears in the Bible, the Trinitarian idea is taught all throughout the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, Paul closing his letter there says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, there you see the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and communion with the Holy Spirit as he gives that sort of closing benediction. Again, despite the fact the Bible teaches the Trinitarian idea, teaches the Trinity all throughout, if we were to be honest up front, our minds wrestle, however, with trying to really grasp 100% and fully understand this concept and this basic truth that God is a Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three persons. And it's challenging for us in our little finite minds to reconcile that. To try and rationalize in our own human understanding, which is limited and finite, and to try and put together the pieces intellectually, because let's be real, that defies logic. 
it's difficult for us to fully grasp intellectually lots of things, personally my opinion is, to, to understand lots of things about God and God's ways. Again, we have enough revelation God's given to us to experience salvation in Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God. But one of the wonders and beauties of God, which I have no problem with, is mystery. Our God is incredible. You know, it's often been said before, if God ever becomes you know, small enough for me to figure out, then he's no longer big enough for me to worship. <laughs> you know, I want a God that is that awesome and incredible that there is an element of mystery about him that makes him so wonderful. That's what's going to make heaven wonderful forever as we continue to see more and more facets of how amazing and how incredible God is. So, again, only one God, yet existing in three distinct persons, we wrestle with that. And as a result, like we always do, people have proposed over the years, and you can read books on the Holy Spirit and commentaries, and you'll notice that we have sought to describe the Trinity with lots of different illustrations. We've tried to uh, grasp it mentally and give some kind of an understanding, all of which illustrations that men propose. They do give some comparison, but I find in every one that I've ever seen or ever heard, they all still fall short in some way. Uh, let, let me give you an example. One example is this, that, that there is one man, let's take myself, I am one human being, and yet, as one human being, uh, I am a father, I'm also a husband, and I'm also a son to my mama. So, I'm one person, but yet, in a sense, I'm also three distinct persons in the sense that I am a husband to my wife, I'm a father to my children, and I'm also a son to my mother, all three simultaneously, yet there's just one of me. There's one person but there are three distinct, in a sense, persons included within that. Here's the challenge. I can only be one thing to certain people at the same time. I can only be a father to my children. I can't be a father to my wife. That doesn't work very well, trust me. First couple minutes of marriage, you figure that out real quick. I can only be a father to my children. I can't be a father to my mother. Again, I can't be a husband to my children. I, I, see, God simultaneously is God the Father, he's God the Son, he's God the Holy Spirit, and he's the same simultaneously to everyone all the time. So again, this, there's a faint comparison. Get a general idea, but it's a faint comparison. Same way with a book. You can have one book, you know, your Bible or a book, and a book has height, it has width, and at the same time it has depth. Those three can't be separated. The same one book has height, width, and depth, but they're three different things. They're, they're not the same thing simultaneously. So again, we make these efforts to try and grasp and understand these things, but they give us a faint idea. And unfortunately, here's the, the sad thing, unfortunately, the gap in our finite intellects has led, tragically, many people to disregard altogether the Trinitarian truth of God. Because they, you know, I, that just doesn't make sense. I, I can't put all the pieces. That, and sadly, that struggle of our finite mind being, not being able to fully grasp every dimension of what, it, it has caused some people to just cast out altogether the idea that God could possibly be a trinity. How could that be possible? One God and three, it just doesn't, I just can't put all the pieces together. And some people tragically reject the idea of the trinity altogether. The important thing, listen to me is not that we fully understand everything intellectually. 1 Timothy 3.16 says the manifestation of the greatness of God is a mystery. 
that, that again, there are elements of God that are and will always be aspects of God mysterious. What matters most, hear me up front, is this. What matters most is that we accept by faith what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says that there is one God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And like everything else in our relationship with God, it's by faith. So by faith, we embrace the truths, even though there are other truths as well that we wrestle with and we can't put them together perfectly in our mind intellectually, but the Bible teaches them. Election, free will, by faith. The Bible teaches both. We accept it by faith. Just because we can't put all the pieces together mentally should not cause us to cast out a truth altogether. So the Trinity, again, taught from Genesis to Revelation. We see the Trinitarian truth taught. First of all, there are Old Testament plural references to God. Go with me back to the very beginning of your Bible. We see this from the start. Genesis chapter 1. We begin to see Old Testament references to God in a plural form. Genesis 1, again, familiar verses, but they indicate this truth. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. God says, let us, notice, make man in our image. Now, we aren't made in the image of angels. So he's not talking to the angels. We're not made in the image of angels. So God here says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his, notice now singular, own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created created them. So take notice here. You have, first of all, conversation, first chapter of the Bible, a conversation happening among the Trinity. God's not speaking to angels here. A conversation happening among the Godhead. And verse 26 shows plural pronouns, God referring to himself saying, let us, us make man in our image, our likeness, plural references. And then in the very next verse, verse 27, it switches what? To singular pronouns. So God made man in his image, singular. He created and he created. So you see this beginning right from the very essence of the earliest stages of the Bible, God revealing himself in the scriptures in this way. You see the same concept repeated in Genesis 3.22. When you get into Genesis chapter 11 there in verses 5 to 7, again, you see this same kind of thing where you have plural references and singular references coupled together as God is revealing himself. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll show you another one before we go to the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 and in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, this is what the Jews often call the Shema, which is basically 
one of the first phrases a Jew learns, and to my understanding, it is a statement also that is typically said at the beginning of each day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your strength. But notice, the Lord our God, verse 4, the Lord is one. That Hebrew word, therefore, one, the Lord is one, is achad, and it is a term in the Hebrew that indicates a compound unity. A unity, yes, but a compound unity, more than one making a unity. In fact, that same term in the Hebrew, akkad, which is a compound unity, that same word is used in Genesis chapter, uh, back in Genesis chapter two, excuse me, where God says regarding the marriage relationship between the man and the woman, He says the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become akkad, a compound unity. And again, here you have this mysterious indication of, of again two distinct. Uh, persons or, or you know multiple being joined together as one flesh with a man and a woman the two shall become a compound unity this mysterious union between a husband and a wife and it's the same word here God referring to himself in this singular and plural sense sort of simultaneously Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 let me just read one other verse to you it says also I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and then, of course, Isaiah says, here my Lord, send me. But again, take notice. God says, whom shall I send? And then in the next breath, he says, who shall go for us? Again, this conversation we see taking place among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit. In the New Testament, we have examples of the Trinity as well. I think one of the clearest indications we see this pictured for is right in the baptism of Jesus. If you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 3 in the New Testament... Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, in the baptism of Jesus, you have clearly pictured the teaching of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew, chapter 3, beginning there in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. And Jesus answered and said, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so it says John allowed him. Look at verse 16 and 17 now, though. And when he, that's Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, God the Father, saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So in the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have right there the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of the Son of God. You also have the presence of the Spirit of God coming down, resting upon Jesus, in a sense, baptizing and anointing him for his public ministry. And you also have, at the same time, simultaneously, the presence of God the Father speaking from heaven down into the earth, his approval and authentication, this is my beloved Son. So again, there in the Trinity and in that scene, you have the representation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Again, we have the Trinity declared by Jesus. We pointed out Matthew 28. 
The Trinity in the New Testament is also declared by Paul. Ephesians 2 verse 18, Paul says that through Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So Paul in his writings declares the Trinity. Peter, the writer Peter, also declares the truths of the Trinity. 1 Peter 1, 2. Listen to Acts 2 verse 32 and 33. When Peter was preaching there, uh, it tells us at Pentecost, Peter said this, that first great sermon in the, to the church. It says, This Jesus God has raised up, which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and here. So again, Peter speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, one of the multiple writers of the New Testament, and what you have there, again, in a few breaths, you have Peter speaking of Jesus, Peter speaking of the Father, and Peter speaking of the Holy Spirit. So again, the New Testament continues to indicate the reality of the Trinity. So the teaching of the Trinity, it's foundational. With that being said as kind of a backdrop, I want to talk about the third person of the Trinity, obviously, the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want to discuss three uh, specific things tonight in relation to that. First of all, the deity of the Holy Spirit. The deity of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the person of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we'll look as we wrap up at the threefold relationship the Bible indicates and Jesus speaks about that we can have with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, let's talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. And again, I use the word deity or divinity, basically just a term speaking of the the state of being God. So when somebody talks about deity or somebody uses the term divinity, they're making a reference to the state of being God. And the Bible teaches and clearly establishes that one God manifested in three persons, yes, but the Bible teaches the divine equality among the Trinity. Again, as Christians, we would emphatically say and defend Jesus Christ is God. Don't you dare, if you take away from the divinity of Jesus Christ and say that he's not God, well, you, you have mixed up what true Christianity is. Pseudo-Christian cults diminish the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. But we need to remember the Holy Spirit is also God too. As much as Jesus is God and the Father is God, we need to remember and reinforce that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Holy Spirit equally shares in every and all attribute of deity, even as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit has attributes of divinity revealed all throughout the Bible. For example, the Bible teaches that he's omnipresent. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? That's an attribute of deity, omnipresence. The idea is that God is everywhere and the Bible pictures the Holy Spirit having that attribute. The Bible also attributes to the Holy Spirit the fact that he's omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2 specifically talks about that. Verse 10 and 11 talks about how the Holy Spirit knows the things of God. He, he knows everything that God knows. Uh, and, and the Bible teaches that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 speaks of the eternal spirit. So the fact that God is eternal, one of God's attributes. He's the eternal God. Well, Hebrews 9 attributes the eternal attribute to the spirit as well. Interestingly, you also see the Holy Spirit is active as a part of one of the participants in creation. Again, Genesis chapter 1, you see the Father and the Spirit 
hovering over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God involved in creation. The New Testament tells us that Jesus also was involved in creation. So all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, they're all involved in creation. So the Spirit of God has that attribute of deity as well. In fact, Job says this. He says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. As well, we see the Spirit of God attributed to the uh, attribute of omnipotence. Luke one thirty five says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest, referring to God, the power of the highest will overshadow you. And lastly, in relation to another attribute of deity for the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches very clearly, especially in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation, in the conversion experience. Again, we say, how did you get saved? Well, God saved me. You ask somebody else, how did you get saved? Jesus saved me. Truth of the matter is the Holy Spirit also saved you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's involved in salvation. The Bible teaches that very clearly. Titus 3 speaks of the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit of God that regenerates our dead spirit that's dead in trespasses and sins. It's the Holy Spirit who quickens us and makes us alive. Uh, Jesus, referring to the conversion experience in John 3, remember his conversation with Nicodemus? And Jesus talking to him, uh, told him to see the kingdom of God. He said, you must be what? He said, born again. And then Jesus ended up going on speaking and saying, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus says, you have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual birth by me saving you in order to become a child of God and to go to God's kingdom. And Jesus says the way that happens is you have to be born of the Spirit. Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh, and which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But again, reminding us that the Spirit is actively involved in the salvation experience. And we'll talk more about that when we speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and then his work in us in the conversion process. Uh, also, in relation to the deity of the Holy Spirit, we also see that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is clearly, a few times, directly referred to or called God. Uh, one of the greatest examples of that, I think you see, is in Acts chapter 5. That's that story with Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember, where they come on the scene, they're pretending to have been a little more generous in their giving than what they really were. They're kind of, in essence, they're guilty of hypocrisy, bottom line. They're guilty of hypocrisy among the church, trying to act more spiritual than what they really were. And Peter, remember, receives what I believe is a word of knowledge, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, where God gives a person knowledge about something that there's no way humanly they could have knowledge about it. But God knows all things. So the gift of knowledge we'll see is where God, supernaturally by the Spirit of God, imparts knowledge about something that he knows that no human being could possibly know, but he puts that knowledge into someone's mind by the Spirit as one of his gifts to sometimes reveal something or to protect. Or to, and that's what God does. God reveals to Peter that they're playing the hypocrite and they're lying and pretending among the church, and God shows his attitude towards hypocrisy very strongly. Remember, Annas and the fire, they fall dead on the spot. But in that passage, you read Acts chapter 5, and you'll notice that Peter rebukes them. He rebukes them for lying to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, he says, you have lied to God. 
You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And the next verse he says, as he continues to talk, he says, why would you lie to God? Indicating what? The Holy Spirit is God. So you have there a direct reference that the Spirit is clearly God. So again, important to understand the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Don't ever let that fact slip your mind. In the same way God the Father is God and God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has every equal sharing among the equality of the Trinity. There is divinity among all three persons and equally shared among them. Secondly, we want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. So turn with me to John chapter 14. And John 14, 15, and 16 is probably some of the lengthiest teaching, especially about the Spirit. Many references in there. Jesus himself speaks about the Spirit of God in a very thorough way in those chapters if you want to read and study them and get some good understandings yourself. But we want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room. He's sharing with his disciples Again, on sort of this last night he has with them, he's imparting important things to them because he's soon going to be separated from them. Uh, and he's been talking to them, remember, about the fact that he's going to go away. He says, I'm going to go away. And they're very troubled about this. In John 14, he says at the very beginning, let not your hearts be troubled. Because their hearts were troubled because Jesus kept talking about, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die. And this is alarming them. That Why does he keep saying this? And he's also talking about what? And I'm going to go away, and you won't see me anymore. So they're struggling with this. And again, he's sharing some things in relation to that. John 14, verse 16. Look at me in verse 16, John 14. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, and I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So Jesus says this, again, with the backdrop of the fact that he has been telling them he's going to depart and go away, that he's going to rise from the dead, he's going to return, he's going to go back to the Father and not be with them. And again, as I said, this is alarming the disciples, because up to this point, again, put yourself in their sandals, up to this point, Jesus has been with them for three and a half years, and he does everything. He teaches them. They don't have to depend on anybody else for spiritual understanding. Jesus taught them everything they needed to know. When they were confused, he answered questions. When they needed instruction, he guided them. When they needed correction, he corrected them. Jesus provided everything. When they didn't have something, Jesus did a miracle. When they needed safety, Jesus would intervene and protect them from the religious leaders. Or Jesus at times would would step in and he would guard them from whatever they needed to be guarded from. He would guide them wherever they needed to go. Jesus was very, very deeply involved and he depended upon him for everything. And now he's saying, what? Uh, guys, I'm done now. I'm leaving. You can imagine. How they, what? <laughs> what are we going to do? Who's going to guide us? Who's going to teach us? How are we going to understand the difference between what's right and wrong? Who's going to protect us when we have problems? And, 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 and who's going to heal when somebody needs to be healed? And, and how are we going to know what to do and where to go? And, 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 and who's, going to, who's going to help us, Lord? You help us by doing everything. And see, it's with that backdrop. That's the reason why, as they're feeling they would be all alone, Jesus gives them this promise now 
of the Holy Spirit coming to them. Again, look at verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to abandon you like an orphan all alone. He says, I'm going to come to you. They've got to be scratching their minds going, what is this? You're going, you're coming, you're going, you're coming. What, what do you mean? I'm not going to leave you orphans, though. I'm going to come to you. How was he going to come to them? Well, clearly, the way he was going to come to them was in the person of the Spirit. Again, look what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, I'm going to pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he, just like Jesus did, he may abide with you forever. So Jesus now begins to use this term referring to the Holy Spirit as the helper. The Greek there, again, is a compound word. It's parakletos in the Greek. Para, the first part of it, means to be with or alongside of. The second half of the word basically just means a counselor or a comforter or can be translated as well, a helper. And that's why you see Jesus here using this term referring to a helper who would come alongside of you. I'm going to send a helper to come be with you and to help you in the way that I used to. So as Jesus ascends back to the Father, the Spirit of God at this point is now sent to the earth to, in a sense, become the agent of God's personal presence on the earth, even as Jesus, for a period of time, was God's personal presence upon the earth. The Spirit of God would now come to fulfill and occupy this place of God's presence on the earth. And notice I said the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence. I point that out, and please hear me here. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not some powerful essence or force. Kind of like, like Star Wars. Remember Star Wars? The Force, Luke. Use the Force. And you know, just there was like this, this essence somehow of, of power. There was this you know, sort of powerful essence that if Luke could just tap into the, this essence, this that somehow that would enable him. And sometimes people have that idea about the Holy Spirit, like he's some impersonal essence, some, some energy or some electric force. And the tragedy of that is then you see these shenanigans and these knuckleheads on television acting like that they can just whip around and demand and command and, and in a sense take control over the force of the Holy Spirit. So somebody's going to whip their jacket and they're going to throw the force of the Holy Spirit out as if somehow the Holy Spirit, again, is just this impersonal electric force or this divine essence that... No, no, no. The Bible teaches the Holy Spirit is a person. People wouldn't do that with God the Father and people wouldn't ever envision something like that with the Son of God. It, it is really counter-scriptural and foolish for us to have any other, the Holy Spirit, please hear me, is a person. He's a person. And the Bible clearly teaches this to us. Again, important because it's hard, would you agree, to have a meaningful relationship with an essence. You can't have an intimate, meaningful relationship with a force. But you can with a person. And God's about relationship. We have a relationship with the Father. We have a relationship with Jesus. We're supposed to have a relationship with with the Spirit of God. We should have a meaningful, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. 
even as we do God the Father and God the Son. He was sent by the Father at the request of the Son. Verse 17, Jesus says, The world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, look at that word, circle it, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Take notice. The Bible declares we can know the Holy Spirit, just like you know the Father in heaven, just like you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, Jesus says, the Bible teaches, that we can know the Holy Spirit, that we can know him even as we do the Father and the Son. We should have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a few examples of help that understanding of him being a person. Notice in our verses in front of us, and you see this especially throughout these verses in John 14, 15, and 16, the constant usage of personal pronouns. Look just here what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, The Spirit of truth the world cannot receive because it neither sees him, personal pronoun, nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Look over in chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says there in verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Look at John 15, verse 26. 15, 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Point being, and it's repetitively seen, the Holy Spirit by Jesus and in the Bible is never referred to as an it. The Holy Spirit is never referred to as a thing. Again, not an essence. Not a, the Holy Spirit is always referred to in personal pronouns, indicating that he is a person, a personality, even as God the Father and God the Son. Again, the definition of a person basically is one who has the capacity of an intelligence, one who has the capacity to have emotions and a will. Intelligence, emotions, and a will. And when you study the scriptures about the Holy Spirit, you, you see that he possesses all of those things. He possesses intelligence. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 12, that the Spirit searches all things knows the deep things of God, and it says no one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is intelligence. He knows the mind of God. Romans 8.27 speaks of the mind of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has intelligence. The Bible shows that the Holy Spirit has emotion. It tells us in Romans 15, verse 30, of the love of the Spirit. Romans 5.5, same thing. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Listen to these two familiar verses. shows you where Paul got his theology from, from the Old Testament. Isaiah 63.10 says they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, that word grieved is a term of emotion. It's a term that refers to grief. That when somebody loses a loved one and they're grief-stricken and they're in sorrow and they're grieving with sadness and that painful emotion of grief and sorrow, the Bible uses that in relation to the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. God says, look, don't do that. My Spirit lives in you. And God says, don't break the Spirit of God's heart. 
We don't want to do things, whether it's some sin we're indulging in or some way we're speaking or acting or something we're thinking, where what we do causes sorrow to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has emotions. We can make the heart of the Spirit of God sad and grieved. The Spirit of God is grieved when we do things that we shouldn't do. Again, sin isn't just, well, sin offends God. Don't sin because you'll offend God. Listen, when we sin, we also break God's heart. Because the Spirit of God indwells us. He lives inside of us. And it causes grief to Him. The Bible also indicates that the Holy Spirit has a will. That is, He makes decisions. He has volition. 1 Corinthians 12 takes about how the Spirit is the one who operates the capacities and the distribution of gifts. It tells us that the Spirit distributes the gifts to each one as He wills. Indicating what? The Holy Spirit makes decisions. He, apparently, among the Godhead, determines who will operate in what gifts among the realm of the gifts of the Spirit. Acts 20, verse 28 says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood. So there in Acts 20, the Bible teaches that, again, the Holy Spirit makes someone an overseer an elder, an overseer, to shepherd the church of God, indicating that it is the Spirit of God via a decision that he makes is the one that decides this person will be an overseer in the body of Christ. This man will be ordained and called to be a pastor and raised up to be an overseer. But it's the Spirit of God who makes that decision and determination. So again, we see the Spirit of God representative of what a person must possess. He has intelligence, he has emotions, he has a will. The Holy Spirit is a person. Lastly, we also see personal acts of the Holy Spirit. And again, let me just read you a few things from a list before we move on. We see in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit forbids and he permits. Because Acts 16, you see the Spirit forbidding in a personal way and then permitting open doors for ministry. As we saw here in our verses, we see the Holy Spirit teaches. We see that Jesus says the Holy Spirit guides and directs. Luke 4.1 says the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. So the Spirit gives direction. The Holy Spirit speaks. You see that in Acts 8.29 and 10.19 and 13.2. First Timothy 4.1 says the Spirit expressly says in the latter days some will depart from the faith. Again, who? The Spirit. The Spirit of God speaks. Acts 13, it's the Spirit that says separate unto me. Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them to. Again, the Spirit speaks out among the church to give direction as they're praying. In Acts 9.31, it speaks of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 speaks of the prayer of the Holy Spirit, that he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Acts 5, we saw he can be lied to. Acts 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. So again, all these attributes and facets of the personhood of the Holy Spirit important to understand. Thirdly and finally, I want to talk about, you know, as we wrap up our time here, three different relationships or experiences a person can have with the Holy Spirit. And to me, very clearly, they come from the three different Greek prepositions that you see Jesus himself, who is who? God, use in relation to the Holy Spirit. If you'll go back with me just to John 14, where we were a minute ago in verse 16 and 17, John 14, Look what Jesus says here in John 14. 
regarding the Holy Spirit, Jesus says the world can't receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Here's what we want to zero in on regarding the Spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit dwells, first of all, with you, and he will be second in you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you, and he will be in you. There's the first two of what I believe the Bible teaches three relationships or three experiences that a person can have with God's Spirit. First of all, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be with you. That's the Greek preposition para. And basically that Greek term means to be with, to be next to, to come alongside of. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit predominantly before a person is saved. Once we're saved, is the Holy Spirit still with us? Yes, I'm not, not disputing that. But primarily the ministry of the Holy Spirit is para. He is with us in the world before we get saved. Because it's the Holy Spirit that does what? Woos us and draws us. He courts us. And he is the one who's convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. He's the one that is convincing us we're a sinner He's the one that's convicting us of that sinfulness and the punishment of hell. And he convinces us as well of the reality that Jesus Christ is God's means of salvation and that Jesus Christ is who we need to accept as Savior. And it's the Holy Spirit who's with us, knocking on our heart and convincing us, revealing truth to us. And that's his ministry before we're saved. He's with us. He's drawing the unconverted soul into a relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, after the point of salvation, Jesus also says here, and he will be in you. Different Greek preposition. It's E-N in the Greek, I-N in the English. That means to enter inside of or to indwell or move within. And the Bible teaches that at the moment of conversion, when you and I accept Jesus Christ as Savior, a change happens. That the Holy Spirit who's been with us, drawing us to Jesus, drawing us to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. He now enters inside of our life. Ephesians 1.3 says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit the moment that we trust Jesus. The Holy Spirit enters in and he seals us and that's God's down payment that he's going to finish the work of salvation and bring us to heaven. The Spirit enters inside of us. We read the same thing in Romans 8 verse 9 through 11. Romans 8, 9 through 11, it repeatedly says that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And again, Famous verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, Do you not know, talking to Christians, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Again, the Bible teaches repeatedly that after a person accepts Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then indwells them. So if you've accepted Jesus Christ tonight, you have the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. And we'll talk about his ministry. Sanctification. He's guiding you. He's teaching you. He helps you understand the scriptures. And we'll talk about that when we discuss the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. So Jesus mentions two there. The Spirit is with us before salvation. Of course, he's with us afterwards as well, but drawing us. He then becomes indwelling inside of us after our conversion but Jesus also uses one other Greek preposition. You see it in Luke 24 and also in Acts 1.8. So go with me lastly to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You see a third Greek preposition used by Jesus, distinctive from these first two. In Acts 
where Jesus says there this. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, circle this word, upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So John 14 says he'll be para with you. He'll be en, he'll be inside of you. And then in Luke 24 and here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus uses another distinct term. In the Greek, it's the letter, English letters E-P-I, a P. It literally means to come on top of, to rest on, or to immerse to the place of overflowing. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will also appear, come upon you. Often we refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe a, 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 a another subsequent experience after conversion that a person can experience with God whereby there is the baptism or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit upon our life to anoint us for service, to give us boldness, to be a witness for Christ, and so that the fruit of God's love would flow out of our life to be able to serve the world around us. That not by might or by power, but by my spirit, God says, that's how you're going to reach the world. And remember, Jesus told them, you wait there in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high, until I send the promise of my Father upon, E-P-I there, there's that word again, this promise of my Father upon you, referring to the Spirit. So three different relationships, and we'll talk and look more at each of these in detail in our studies ahead. Before I pray, I want to lastly just leave you, just for your own observation, six idioms, six word pictures that we find in the Bible used for the Holy Spirit. If you want to jot them down or just take mental reference to them, we find six different word pictures or idioms to picture the person and the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, he's representative of a dove. The Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove. We know Jesus' baptism. A dove is a picture of tranquility, of calmness, of peacefulness, unlike something like a hawk that's aggressive. Okay? The Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove. Tranquil, gentle, calm, peaceful. Not a duck. Weird. Quack, quack, off like a quack. That's probably not the Spirit of God. It's probably not the Holy Spirit. Hey, you're quenching... Don't quench the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. But I'm all about quenching the human spirit. Because it gives people the wrong idea. And it's sometimes not an accurate representation of what God's truly doing. Quench the human spirit? Absolutely. Quench the Holy Spirit? No. The Holy Spirit is represented as a dove. Tranquil, peaceful, calm in the ways in which he works, yet in great power. He's also represented in the Bible as oil. And oil was used to soothe to soften, to lubricate, to heal, to anoint for service. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. A lot of times it is the Holy Spirit of God who softens our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit of God who who lubricates where there's friction. Interesting. Ephesians 5, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he starts talking about human relationships, marriage, parent-child relationships, work relationships, and he says, but before you try all that, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because humans create friction among one another. But he says, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will lubricate and minimize the friction that many times happens in relationships. Again, the Spirit of God as oil, anointing for service, we see it. 
A third idiom, the Spirit is pictured as wine. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we think of wine or alcohol, a person is under the influence of alcohol. The alcohol controls them. So when somebody is under the influence of wine, that wine influences their speech, right? Alcohol influences the way they act. It influences the way that they think. It influences the way they see things. What's the Bible saying? Listen, in the same way you see a drunk person, his thoughts, his actions, his words, it's all under the influence of the alcohol. It's a picture. God says, I want you to be under the influence of the Spirit. I want there to be a Spirit-filled condition in your life where your thoughts are under the influence of the Spirit, where your words are under the influence of the Spirit, where the way you act is under the influence of the Spirit. So the Bible gives us this picture of the Spirit as wine. Fourthly, water. And water represents life. Or water also is a picture of something that quenches and satisfies our thirst. And it's also a picture of a power source. We know that water can be a tremendous power source. And in John chapter 7 and chapter 4, at times we find the Holy Spirit pictured as water because he satisfies thirst in the human soul. He's a powerful source of life to us. Fifthly, we see the Spirit represented in the picture at times of fire. And what does fire do? Fire cleanses, it purifies, and fire is a devouring force. A devouring force. A devouring force that just consumes and takes over. That's a picture. Again, Jesus talks about being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That indication to us. Lastly, a picture, sixthly, of the Spirit in the Bible is wind. And what does wind do? Wind causes change. It's unseen. There's no visible, but wind, though it's unseen, causes change. It affects things, and wind moves things in a direction whereby the wind is blowing. And again, it's a picture. Again, the Spirit of God filling our sails and, and, and affecting change in us. Well, I'm not, but I just, that's, that's just not the way that I am. Well, listen, God didn't save you to keep you the way that you are. God saved you to change you if you didn't notice that. <laughs> you know, I, I never said, well, that's just not the way that I am. And this is like this subtle Christian justification. We know that's just not the way that I am. Well, great, it's not the way that you are. But if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away, all things become new. Now God, by the wind of his spirit, being blown through our sails continuously, says, well, I, I, I want to move you in the direction of the new man, of the new woman, of who I want you to be, and I want my spirit to be who is guiding you and directing you. And all I want you to do, God's saying, is just yield. Yield. Put up the surrender like the sail of your sailboat. Just put, it's surrender, submission. It's not about, oh, I, need, I need more of the Spirit, I need more of the Spirit. I often wonder if it's not so much that we need more of the Spirit as if it's that the Spirit needs more of us. That we would be more submitted, more surrendered, and let the Spirit of God do in us what He desires to do. And finally,